This is Off Zero, brought to you by LearnBitcoin.io. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Off Zero, Episode 6, the new podcast from LearnBitcoin.io, where any topic is welcome as long as it's Bitcoin. Learn Bitcoin is the easiest way for anyone who's Bitcoin curious or financial advisors and wealth managers to learn about this emergent asset class. And today I am super excited to welcome Drew Fisher. Drew is a staunch Bitcoiner who heads up e-commerce at Blockstream, founded by Adam Back. Blockstream is busy at work building the future infrastructure of Bitcoin and Bitcoin's blockchain. Drew, welcome to the pod. Keith, thank you for having me. Awesome. And of course, everybody who joins Learn Bitcoin as a guest uh, gets to pick a charity that they want us to donate to on their behalf. And Drew has picked Me Premier Bitcoin down in El Salvador, which is helping to educate the next generation of Bitcoiners on the world's new reserve currency. So thanks so much for choosing them. We'll make that donation right after this pod. Thank you for doing that. Very cool that you guys are doing this. Awesome, my friend. So uh, we've met a number of times. We know each other very well. I couldn't be more excited to have you on this pod. Tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, how you got into Bitcoin. I'd love to hear about that. Sure. So hi, I'm Drew. Uh, I work at Blockstream. Uh, I've been working there for a little more than two years now. Um, and I run the e-commerce store, as you mentioned. Um, I started, I got into Bitcoin in 2017 when I was in college at the time. I believe I was a sophomore or a junior, I forget. And uh, absolutely got my face ripped off in the rug pulls. Uh, that's a classic uh, theme throughout that era of Bitcoin. Um, but I, after getting my face ripped off in a rug, I was like, there's still something here. But I took a little bit of a break from the whole ecosystem and I just couldn't stop thinking, like, what is this blockchain thing? Because I was falling for marketing. I wasn't understanding the technicals. So over the next, like, year or so, I started learning more about the technicals. And I was like, oh, oh. so Bitcoin's the only one that matters. And so then since then, I've just been, much like all Bitcoiners, just shilling the crap out of it and enjoying every single second of it. That's awesome. And it's, you know, it's great to see. We touched on this a little bit. I, I've spoken with... Uh, Ella Huff uh, a couple of times, who's doing uh, great work over at Cornell, just part of this kind of youth Bitcoin movement. Um, and what I've seen out there after having been in, in Bitcoin for some period of time is uh, you've got kind of a, a waging war between the impatient and the patient. Um, I think those that have a lower time preference understand that Bitcoin is a savings technology. Uh, and you know, you can stack, I mean, it's a perfect opportunity when you're younger to stack, stack, stack and, and build a future for yourself. And those who are less patient tend to go around to all these other crypto tokens and, and, uh, you know, walk into the casino and, and walk out with usually nothing. What, what would you say to those that are on the start of their careers looking to kind of allocate something to Bitcoin? Um, well, one, just start. Start buying just Bitcoin and you can learn of the technicals later. Um, mm -hmm. You will understand why I say that and why many others say just buy Bitcoin later. Um, there is a reason if you just like take a step outside of the ecosystem in general, ask yourself why is uh, sports betting and just betting in general becoming way more common. 
if you just like think about that for about five minutes, you're going to be like, that is a weird thing. And then you could apply that same concept to the crypto space and be like, why are all these coins? Why is there so much marketing around these coins? There's a pretty big correlation between people going further out on the risk curve and just trying to get that extra dime. And because they're trying to just make a living, um, delayed gratifications, the marshmallow test. And, you know, I kind of get that. I mean, like, you know, I'm in my mid 40s and I don't expect to get Social Security. Right. So I would imagine people getting out of college now are they've kind of given up on the fact that, you know, the government's going to be providing for them in the future. We're clearly going to run out of money. That's a mathematical certainty. Um, And so to me, like if I could go back and talk to myself and Bitcoin were around and be like, just DCAN, just get a little bit at a time build your stack, do it safely and securely, uh, and then and you'll reward yourself in, in 20, 30 years. Um, but I, yeah. I, so I laugh when you said that you're not going to get your social security. I laugh not at you, but with you. Um, for a person, a kid that's just graduating college, for you to just subscribe like, oh, I'm going to get my social security. I mean, like, <laughs> you want to go down a rabbit hole. I mean, that is just the saddest rabbit hole you could ever go down. Kiss it goodbye, man. Yeah, I, it's it's just not not going to happen. Um, so tell us about Blockstream. Uh, I would love to hear about how how it came about. Obviously, Adam Back is a very well known individual in the Bitcoin space, having been, I believe, one of the first individuals who communicated with the anonymous Satoshi Nakamoto uh, back in the early days of Bitcoin. Tell us a little bit about uh, how Blockstream came about. Sure. So yeah, uh, Blockstream. Created in, I believe, 2013 or 2014 um, by just some absolute studs in the Bitcoin space. Um, and since then, their idea was to build, like like you said in the beginning, a infrastructure company for Bitcoin. So that means building out layer twos. That means building uh, research for layer ones. That means building out wallets, whether that's software or hardware wallets. That means building out a satellite infrastructure in case like internet goes down, Bitcoin can still run if you have a satellite in your backyard. I mean, like that is like so cool and so far thinking. We're like talking right now and I still can't wrap my head around the idea. Who's like, yeah, I'm going to make a satellite so Bitcoin can always run. I think that's the most baller thing. I sound like a Blockstream shill and I understand, but I was a fan of Blockstream before even joining. Um, super cool, super cool company to work at and just a super cool company in general. So it's, it's very interesting. Of course, we just heard that MicroStrategy, who has acquired an enormous amount of, of Bitcoin, about 190,000 so far, is now moving into the kind of layer two space uh, for Bitcoin. So they're going to be building on, on, on top of that uh, base layer. And of course, this is something that Blockstream had been doing for almost 10 years now. Um, it's, it's interesting because I don't think the majority of the world who is exposed to Bitcoin or soon will be exposed to Bitcoin realizes that Bitcoin is more than just a monetary network. It's actually a technology you can build on top of. And that just, that doesn't work with people easily. Like it's hard to understand. You want to explain a little bit about, you know, Bitcoin's base layer and then the ability to build on top of Bitcoin and, and what those use cases could be or look like. You touched on them briefly before. Sure. You know, one of my favorite uh, analogies to use is that I'm ripping Michael Saylor's thing completely. He says Bitcoin's base layer is like built like the city of Manhattan or like New York City. 
you're building on top of just this prime real estate. If you start thinking about Bitcoin's base layer as just prime, like just the ground, what can you do on top of that ground? For Bitcoin, that's layer twos, whether that's lightning, where you have microtransactions going at the blink of an eye, the light is, the speed of light, which is just insane to think about, or you got the liquid network, uh, which is another side chain to Bitcoin, where you can build out, you know, uh, the financial layer, you could have Tether on there, you could have stocks on there, you could have bonds on there, you could have anything you really want on there. The crazy thing to me, and it took me the longest time to wrap my head around it, is because is that Bitcoin can be scaled. When you first get into the crypto space, you're told that Bitcoin can't scale. Now you have to ask yourself, why is that a saying? Why is that a mindset? And once you just remove yourself and look at this place for what it is, who's saying this is coins that had an ICO. They have a whole marketing team worth that can spend hundreds of millions of dollars on fudding Bitcoin and saying it can't scale. You can't build on top of Bitcoin so that you buy their token. So that's all I got to say. Yeah, I don't know. No, it's interesting. And so, <laughs> so obviously, uh, Blockstream's got a whole bunch of different products. Um, the one that I, I love all of them, but I, I obviously love the Jade wallet. Um, and you've got this ability to self-custody your Bitcoin. And this is something that people probably aren't aware of. They they previously went to Coinbase or some other exchange and, and, and bought their Bitcoin and kept it on exchange like they do with stocks. Right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of a similar example. But with Bitcoin, you can actually pull it off the exchange and self-custody it. It's a bearer asset that can be custodied just like gold or or silver. And then conversely, you've got these ETFs that have come out, which basically, let's be honest, in, in some people's minds, takes the, the, the complexity out of storing um, Bitcoin. What, tell us a little bit about the pros and cons as you see it between self-custody and then buying into the ETF. Sure. So you're going to get a hot take. Um, so, uh, self-custody is told from mainstream media, from my perspective, mainstream media tells you don't self-custody. It's really hard. And the reason that, or like how they say that is man lost his password and, uh, threw it out and hard drive is now looking through the dumpster, you know, every day because it's worth a hundred million dollars or you insert that story, just fork it off, you know, a hundred times. And um, so they'd say it's really hard. But if you just download a wallet, blue wallet, green wallet, nunchuck, whatever, and you just write down the 12 words, you can receive Bitcoin in like literally 30 seconds. So the narrative that it's hard is just, in my perspective, is just not true. Can you mess it up? Sure. But I think we're entering a new era of just total self-responsibility. Whereas in the old world, pre-Bitcoin, it was like, I'll just not have to worry about it someone else will take care of it and that's fine but we're just a new in a new paradigm so to answer your question like what's my views on people just buying the etf sure go ahead i think it's a very fine play in the short term i think it'll help the bitcoin price in the short term um but as matt odell says if it can get rugged it will get rugged i prescribe to that uh mindset pretty hard um, if you go through the Celsius stuff, if you go through the BlockFi stuff, if you go through the FTX stuff, 
Like that was just pretty difficult. Like why would you leave your coins on an exchange? Why would you pay someone? You're paying a fee with these ETFs. Why would you pay someone to have them store your Bitcoin if they can rug it? What happens if the government does a 6102 executive order and says, oh, thanks BlackRock, we're going to take your Bitcoin now. Now you as the end user, you paid money for you to lose your Bitcoin. I mean, I think in the long term, you should self-custody. And I would think for younger people and specifically, it's easier for you to self-custody than for you to sign up for a Fidelity account to then buy an ETF in my perspective. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I think there's I think the future is probably going to be a mixture of exposure to ETFs and self custody. I, I can't imagine, you know, people who truly understand Bitcoin not self custodying, not seeing the value of that. And I you know, I, I teach these these classes at, at Fordham on on Bitcoin. One of our one of our classes is a practical application of wallet management, Bitcoin wallet management. And I'll tell you something, Bitcoin is extremely theoretical until somebody opens their wallet and they get sent Bitcoin and then they send that Bitcoin around the class and they realize that they're transferring value, they're transferring money. Uh, and they're doing it without anybody's permission. And, and here's the key, because whenever we do this, we open up our wallets and we transfer money in class. A lot of these students say, well, I can do this with Venmo too. And my answer to that is, well, you need somebody's permission to do that. You need to basically KYC. You need to ensure that there's a central authority that is processing all those transactions. Uh, the beauty with Bitcoin is it's truly peer-to-peer and it's truly decentralized. You don't need anybody's permission. Another example, without going on too far, is we donated to the grassroots uh, soccer organization for Peter McCormick, um, and uh, it's a UK organization. I'm based in the US. If I had to go to my bank and transfer money over to a UK bank, it would literally take five days, and I'd have to fill out three forms. Within three seconds, I sent you know a lightning invoice, or I sent a paid via lightning to uh, to their organization. So I think my point is. Practically speaking, when when people actually uh, try out the technology, I think the lights go on. Would you agree? For sure. Oh, absolutely. Well, and to expand upon, like you need permission when you send Venmo. For in the beginning, I'm, I'm only going to speak for myself. In the beginning, I was like, yeah, Venmo works perfectly. Cash App works perfectly. And then you start doing a little history lesson, and you're like, oh, like some people didn't get permission. And then all of a sudden, all of their money was taken. Or you can use an example that happened with, you know, a couple years ago, it doesn't matter what your politics are, the Canadian trucker convoy. I mean, those truckers bank accounts got shut down, shut down. It doesn't matter what your politics are on that whole situation. It's like they couldn't use their money to buy food. What an insane concept that is. So to your point, absolutely. And here, sorry, I'm going to riff again. Have a young person fill out a bank transfer form. I couldn't even begin to tell you how to start that process. <laughs> I could teach you how to send Bitcoin in 30 seconds. Yeah. And, you know, you touched on a, an interesting topic, freezing or, or holding somebody mon- somebody's money. You know, and, and again, without getting political or religious, you know, we, we did have a, a massive separation of church and state hundreds of years ago. Uh, and a number of people on Twitter on X have basically said, well, well, Bitcoin is really a separation of money and state, like it used to be. 
um, a long, long time ago, and we're kind of getting back to those basics. But we should probably veer into the discussion around potential central bank digital currencies, because if you think you can freeze someone's money, you know, today, if governments around the world, if central banks around the world try to, quote unquote, mimic Bitcoin and uh, create a centralized digital dollar or euro or yen, they can do a lot more than just freeze your money. They can kind of tell you what to do with your money or the money can expire or they can fine you immediately. You know, are you concerned as, as, a, as a younger Bitcoiner, are you concerned about the potential of a central bank digital currency? Yes. I, I, and again, I laugh with you, not at you. Um, CBDCs, I don't know how close they are to becoming a real thing or not. But those scare the living GBs out of me. I mean, talk about just evil amongst evil. Um, there, and the way that they'll propagandize that being a good thing is they'll say, oh, it'll help the environment. Oh, it will be safe for you. Like we will defund terrorists, um, which, you know, might be true in the short term. But if it can be evil, it will be evil, uh, no matter how good of intentions they have to begin with. Uh, give it one generation for new people to get into power with that. Yeah, kiss that goodbye. Oh, you're consuming too much electricity. We're going to have to throttle how much money you get this month because you're a, a pollutant. Um, you drive your car too much or you, you, you cross the street when you weren't supposed to. We're going to freeze your funds. You've been a bad citizen. Look at China with the CCP and the, their uh, social credit system. I mean, talk about just dystopian nightmare. Now apply that to your money? Oh, geez, yeah, no thanks. I'm out of that so fast and so hard. Whatever. You know, I'm, I'm a, a very proud American, very happy to be in this country, blessed to be in the country uh, and love it and, and hope that America maintains its its dominance. And a lot of people have comments about, you know, American ideals and that we've stretched too far. But the reality is, you know, better the devil you know sometimes than the devil you don't know. Uh, and I do believe net net we are uh, we are on the right side, even though we have political divides. Um, but I would say, you know, my choice to invest in Bitcoin is a vote, right? It's a, It's a vote. And I do believe if you look at the basics of Bitcoin, it does very much follow the ethos of what America was built on, right? Freedom, uh, freedom from control, from central control, the ability to make your own decisions and do what you want, right? Uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it's all embodied within the concept and ethos of Bitcoin. And so, you know, my my hope is that the United States truly embraces Bitcoin as a novel um, uh, new currency and perhaps builds whatever they're going to build. They build it on top of Bitcoin. Um, we all know currencies, you know, that hold world world reserve status do die at some point in time. It's a given. Um, you know, it's not an if it's an it's a when. And I just don't see any currency outside of the U.S. dollar that you know, the world is going to trust apart from, from Bitcoin, you know? I mean, absolutely. How could you be any person in the world with even the slightest know-how of history, watch a new fiat currency come into play and be like, yep, this time is different. <laughs> 
Whereas you have this whole other system that is already built out, that's welcoming you with welcoming hands, saying, come here, look at all these people. They're so happy. They're so free. They love each other. And you're going to be like, yep, I'm not going to do that one. I'm going to go to this other fiat currency where every fiat currency in the entire existence of the human species has hyperinflated. <laughs> I mean, okay, you're, you're right. You're right. You're totally right. Yep. So we're, we're about to close down, but I want to ask you uh, before we, we finish off, you have a very uh, solid mouthpiece for the younger generation, right? It's, you know, of, of 10, 10 younger individuals I meet in crypto, eight or nine of them are actually in kind of all these different tokens and, and projects trying to kind of uh, to make their way to, to Valhalla. Um, so you're in the minority in terms of your thought process around Bitcoin as a savings technology. Um, could you just walk us through in the next few minutes what steps you would advise taking for younger generations to kind of explore uh, Bitcoin, get their, their head around it, and then what you would suggest they do in terms of, of course, not financial advice, in terms of general exposure to Bitcoin as they continue to uh, learn and grow their stack? Sure. What a great question. I've been riffing a lot, and now you're going to make me go on a 10-minute monologue. I'll keep it short. Um, before you even look into Bitcoin, I would ask the young person to say, like, all right, over the last couple of years when you go to the grocery store, have you complained at all about the price increases? Answer will every time be yes. All right, great. Have you ever complained about not being able to afford real estate? The answer will always be yes. Have you ever complained about how much college has costed? The answer will always be yes. All right, so why do I ask those three questions? There's an underlying theme to the whole thing, and it's called the Cantillon effect, Cantillion effect, however you pronounce the word. I would ask that young person to now look into that term, Cantillon effect, C-A-N-T-I-L-L-I-O-N effect, however you spell effect. And it will absolutely open that young person's mind. Never have they been taught what the Cantillon effect is. And for those who don't know, it's those at top get the money, the money from the spigot first. And then it's like trickle down economics, which you learn in school. And like you can have your theories on if that works or not, whatever. But the Cantillon effect is a real thing. And you could apply it to housing. You can watch in real time as your housing goes up. And so after learning what the Cantillon effect is, and it'll only take you 35 seconds, you're like, huh, well, how do I fix this? How is there a system that doesn't award the people that are richest first? Well, Bitcoin. Proof of work is an insane new tech, not even a new technology, an insane technology that is spread across the world. So once you understand that the Cantillon effect is a real thing, read uh, The Price of Tomorrow by Jeff Booth. That'll take you mm -hmm. two days. Then my suggestion would be to read the Bitcoin standard so you kind of understand what Bitcoin is. And then what actually broke through my head was the number zero in Bitcoin by Robert Breedlove. That opened up a brand new world for me. And if you read all three books, it'll take you five, six days tops. Um, and at the end of that, I'm sorry, this is a long rant. At the end of that, you're going to have a fresh new breath of air where you say, why is there this whole new system that I was never taught about in school? And I think a lot more questions that will arise from the person internally will come out where then they are intrigued themselves 
where I'm not force feeding you them the answers or the questions. You're not force feeding them the questions. You're not force feeding them to open up a wallet. They're opening up their own wallet because they're intrigued. That's awesome. That's great. I love the fact that you kind of summarized uh, theory, understand a little bit more about money, and then you went straight into some reading options and choices. That would, you know, the the Bitcoin Standard was one of the first books that I had read. I had, early on in my uh, Bitcoin career, I'd actually gone to a uh, a meet dinner with a whole bunch of Bitcoiners in the New York area, and Saifuddin was there um, along with Pierre Rochard and a whole bunch of other other Bitcoiners. Um, and that kicked off my, my kind of learning experience with, with Bitcoin. It was uh, very memorable. And I do think a mixture of media, whether it's, you know, research and blogs and articles and books and talking to a lot of Bitcoiners uh, is, is really helpful because, you know, it's always fun talking to Bitcoiners when you're in the euphoria and haze of, of, you know, massive bull markets. But it's a lot more difficult when you're in the bear market and everybody's kind of left town and you hear crickets and tumbleweeds. Um, Drew, this has been like super insightful. I'm so happy that you joined us on this pod. uh, And I look forward to keeping in touch with you. So thanks so much and uh, appreciate you being with us. Keith, thank you for having me. This was an absolute blast. All right. Take care. Learn more at learnbitcoin.io.